John fifteen eighteen to sixteen eleven. Hear the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever that whenever someone kills you, he thinks he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When people ask me how I'm doing during this time or when I interact with other pastors and talk about how we're doing during this time, there's something of a common consensus. And that is that we're able to do some of the things that a church does. We're not able to do them as well. Of course, one of the main things that a church does is gather on the Lord's Day for public worship. And we've been very restricted about that. But we have been able to do some things through the means uh, that we have. And that is, we've been able to try to love each other. And we've been able to try to build each other up in the faith. And we've gone back to some old-fashioned means of doing that, actually picking up the phone and making phone calls and talking to people, but also using other communication technologies to try to love one another and build one another up in the faith. We've already heard that that's one of the things that we should be doing. That's the great commandment. Jesus, in this farewell discourse, that's one of the things he emphasized, and we already saw that back in chapters 13 and 14. This is the commandment, love one another as Christ has loved us. And we have been doing that more or less as we've been able to during this time of shutdown and restrictions. 
However, we have been very limited in doing another thing that is a primary activity of the church. And that is witnessing about Jesus to the world. Because we've been told, don't go out into the world. Stay at home. And it's been very difficult to figure out how we fulfill that aspect of our ministry when we're told to stay home. And we have been doing as churches what we can to get the word out by electronic means, but we feel very limited in what we're able to do. And what we have in this text is that shift from our focus on how we should treat each other, loving one another, to this text today, our outward focus, how we are to approach the world, what we are to tell the world, how we are to engage the world, and, in addition to that, how the world will treat us. And in turning from how we are to treat one another to how the world treats us, Jesus turns from love to hatred. He tells us, love one another, and then he tells us, in no uncertain terms, the world will hate you. That's how he begins in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So that's how he begins. And the way this section is broken down, we have, he talks about the hatred of the world, and then he talks about the Holy Spirit, then he goes back to talk about the hatred of the world, and then he closes with another section on the Holy Spirit. So first, the hatred of the world in verses 18 to 25 of chapter 15. He says the reason, the, one of the reasons the world hates Christians is because we no longer are of the world. Now, often when we hear the world, we think it means everybody, or it means the planet. And sometimes in the Gospel of John, it does mean that. But usually in the Gospel of John, as we have seen time and time again, the world is a something of a technical term to mean rebellious humanity. Humanity arrayed in opposition against God. That's why that most famous of verses, John 3.16, is so amazing. It says, For God so loved the world... And usually we read that saying, God so loved everybody, but that's not the focus of it. The focus is that God loved rebellious humanity so much that He sent His only Son to give His life for those who would trust in Him. That's what's so remarkable. But here we're getting to the end, and Jesus is making a distinction between His own, who believe in Him, and the world who does not yet believe in Him, and says, that's why they hate you, because you are no longer of them. If you were of them, it would love you as it loves its own. That's a a natural human tendency to love those of our own group. And it says the world is no different. The world loves its own. But you are not of the world. And he says the reason you're not of the world, in verse 19, he says, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We were of the world, but if we are in Christ now, by His grace, by His choice, He has chosen us out of the world so that we are no longer of the world. But what does that make us from the world's perspective? It makes us traitors. It makes us those who have turned our back on our people. And so, it hates us as traitors are always hated by those whom they betray. Now, that's the first explanation, but the second explanation is, if you're a Christian, 
then you are associated with whom? You're associated with Christ. Jesus says in verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So he's saying, if you're identified with me, you're a servant... And they will treat you the way, same way they treated the Master. That's how he began. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. Servants should not expect anything better than the way the Master was treated. And how was the Master treated by the world? The world hated Jesus. The world crucified Jesus. Now, he says, they persecuted me, they will persecute my followers. And if they listen to my word, they will listen to your word as well. And so there's some encouragement there. That if they did, and there are some who listen to Jesus' words, they will listen to our words as we preach them as well. Now, what we've seen is two things. The world hates Christians because we are no longer of the world. The world hates Christians because it hated Jesus. But then he backs it up one step further. The world hates Jesus because it hates the Father. That's what he says in verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. In verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Verse 21, if I had not... Uh, Verse 22, I'm sorry, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse. Jesus said, I've done the works of the Father. I've given you the words of the Father. And if I hadn't done that, then they could plead ignorance. But because I've done that, they can't plead ignorance. They've seen the works of the Father. They've heard the words of the Father. And they hated those. And that's because they hate the Father just like they hate me. If you look at verse 24... Now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But this is in fulfillment of the Scriptures. They hated me without cause. That comes up in a a number of places in in the Psalms, but probably the one we read already, Psalm 69. They hated me without cause. So this gratuitous hatred actually fulfills the Scripture, probably this Psalm. So that's the first part. Jesus says, the world will hate you. But then he moves right into a discussion about the Holy Spirit. And if we look at verse 26, he says, But when the Helper comes, and we've seen that this is a difficult word to translate, the Helper, the Advocate, uh, in Greek the Paraclete, the one who is called alongside, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. And so here he says, you will have this helper, this paraclete called alongside. And Jesus says, I will send him. This is the, the same idea we've already seen a number of times in, a number of times in John that Jesus went out from the Father. And now he says there is another who will go out from the Father. It's the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Paraclete. And I will send that one out from the Father, uh, and He will be with you. And He will be a witness. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has called to account a number of witnesses. And He has mentioned John the Baptist, He's mentioned Moses. But the primary witnesses that He calls are the witness of the works that He's done, and the words that he's spoken. Time and time again, he calls those as witnesses. And now he's saying, I'm about to go, and so I am going to give you a permanent replacement witness. 
I'm going to go, but I will send you the paraclete, the one called alongside to be a witness. But he says, not only should will he be a witness, but all of you will bear witness as well. Look at verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So who's going to bear witness when Jesus goes? Whom does he leave to bear witness? Whom does he send to bear witness? Well, he sends the Holy Spirit to bear witness, and he sends us to bear witness. And this is a a joint witness. How does the Holy Spirit bear witness? The Holy Spirit bears witness as we bear witness. And so this is the joint witness, our witness, and the witness of the Advocate. Now, um, when... Jesus finishes talking in this little section about the Holy Spirit. Then he goes back to talking about the hatred of the world in chapter 16. And he tells us why he's already told us about the hatred of the world. He said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So after Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit and his followers were hated and they were persecuted. And he says, I told you this was going to happen. And I'm telling you beforehand so that it doesn't fall as a surprise to you. I'm telling you this beforehand so that you don't fall away when it happens. And he says exactly what would happen. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. That happened with the first Jewish followers of Jesus. And then he says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. You see, those who killed the original apostles, they thought they were serving God. They thought they were doing a great thing of service to God. That's how... That's how their religious ideas function. They, they thought that they were serving God because they were killing these, these Christians. And he says, they will do these because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. So they're, in their ignorant religious zeal, they will put you to death. Then he says in verse 4, I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So... Um, Telling you beforehand, Jesus says, so you won't fall away, and so that you remember my words, that this is exactly what I told you would happen. So don't be surprised. This is normal. Now, this may not feel normal to us. This may seem very foreign to us here in a a Western democratic republic. But this actually is the norm for Christians throughout the centuries. This is very common for Christians to be hated, to be imprisoned, to be beaten, to be deprived, to be raped, to be sold into slavery, and to be killed. And uh, this is actually happening around the world today in numbers that are quite astounding. There is a, a study, a center for the study of global Christianity. And this is an academic endeavor. And so this is a serious endeavor to come up with statistics about global Christianity. And one of the statistics that they study is Christian martyrdom. And they estimate, of course, this is, this is very difficult, to, impossible to get the accurate numbers, but, but the, the best they can come up with is this. In the 2,000 years of global Christianity, of Christianity, there have been about 70 million martyrs, Christian martyrs, 70 million Christian martyrs. Now, that's not, that's not counting the ones who were simply imprisoned or beaten or driven out of their communities or sold into slavery. That's not counting those. These are the ones who were killed for their faith. And they estimate that half of those 70 million were killed during the 20th century. 
So 35 million during the first 19 centuries, and then another half, 35 million during the last century, 20 of the 20th century under fascist or communist uh, regimes. Now, how's it going in our century? They estimate that in our century, from 2000 to 2010, there have been about 100,000 Christian martyrs per year. Per year. So, in the first decade of our new century, there have been about 1 million more Christian martyrs. And, and when we read this, we might not understand the impact of this because we haven't experienced, like many of our brothers and sisters throughout the ages and throughout the world today. And others outside of Christianity might read this and say, oh, you Christians, you Christians have a martyrdom complex. And you're always talking about this sort of thing and, and thinking that everybody hates you and really nobody really hates you. But if you look at the numbers it's very clear that Jesus was not joking when he said the world will hate you. Seventy million and a million in, well, now we're at 2020, so maybe two million more in our century. Now, if this is foreign to us, if, if we have not experienced this sort of hatred from the world, then I think we ought to ask ourselves why that is. If Jesus said that this is, this is a normal situation, that humanity arrayed in rebellion against God will hate you, and if we have not experienced that hatred, why is that? And it's perhaps because we in the West are so conformed to the world that we really don't offer any threat to the world. So why would anybody bother persecuting us? if we look so much like the world? That, that's a question that I have. Is it because we're not so distinctly Christian that the world doesn't hate us so overtly? But there are a couple of things in our Western society that the world cannot take and cannot tolerate from us. And these may become the flashpoints in which the, the ire of the world is developed here in the West against Christianity. One is biblical sexual ethics. And that's becoming increasingly intolerable in our society. Anyone who tries to uphold biblical sex, sexual ethics is, is called all sorts of names uh, and is excluded from the conversation because that's, that's one position that, that cannot be tolerated in our world. But the other one, and that's the other one that's more prominent and more basic to the gospel, is this. That is, that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus said that in John. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And throughout the centuries, that is the message that Christians have preached. But that's the, that's the one message that cannot be tolerated in our apparently tolerant Western society. And if we just say, if we go out and we say, we like Jesus, or we love Jesus, we think He's the greatest, the world will be fine with that. But when we begin to say, Jesus is the only way to the Father, now we have become very offensive in our 
our tolerant Western society. I, I've seen with, with, uh, with great pain, I've seen some interviews on TV at different points with prominent Christians and prominent churchmen and prominent preachers. And when the interviewer is asking point blank for them to explain if Jesus is the only way, it's been painful for me to see how some have squirmed and smiled and and done all they could to get away from saying that Jesus is the Son of God and He came and He lived and He died and He rose again and so therefore He is the only way to God and you must believe in Him to have eternal life. But no, they've said things like, well, I'm not going to pass judgment on that sort of a question or, or that's up to God, I'm not going to get into that sort of thing. Or they say, well, yes, Jesus is the only way for Christians, implying that, well, there certainly have to be other ways out there for other people. And if we do that, as many churches have done, caving in on biblical sexual ethics or caving in on the uniqueness of Christ, that He is the only way to the Father, then we may be able to gain some friendship with the world. But at what cost? At the cost of giving away the only message we have to say to the world and the message that the world desperately needs to hear. Good news that there is a Savior from sin, that there is a Savior from death, that there is a Savior from eternal destruction. And that Savior, the only Savior, is Jesus. Why is He the only Savior? Because He's the only Son of God become man. He's the only one who gave His life for His people. He's the only one who is risen from the dead. And so that's the message that we need to preach in our world, even if that message is intolerable in our tolerant age. Now, this might all sound very glum that we're being sent out into a buzzsaw to be destroyed, and maybe some of us will be. But at the same time, Jesus ends by saying there is a a game-changing factor here There is a secret weapon, if you will, as we go out with this message that has never been popular in the world. Guess what? Some will believe it. Some will believe it. No one comes to me except the Father draws him, Jesus says. And how does the Father draw him? And that's what he gets back to at the end. The Holy Spirit's work. If you look at verse 4, he says, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus didn't talk much about the Holy Spirit throughout the Gospel of John, but now he's talking a great deal about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's about to leave and the Holy Spirit is about to come. Verse 5 but now of chapter 16, But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. What's going on here? Jesus is saying, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. But if I go away, I will send Him to you. Why this, why this one and then the replacement of the other? 
Well, what does it mean that Jesus is going away? It means that He has completed His work. And we will see that at the end of John, that that it is all completed, it is all finished. And the Holy Spirit is the one who takes that completed work of Christ and presses it home for the world. He's the one who brings it to the world through our witness. And so, Jesus needs to finish the task and be exalted to the right hand of the Father where it is complete for Him to send the Holy Spirit to apply that completed work to His people and to the world. Now, um, Jesus says in verse 8, something unusual. And that is, up to this point, He's talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in and for Christians, in and for Christians. But now, since he's talking about the world in this section and our witness in the world, he talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in and for the world. Verse 8, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And these are three areas that are central to the Gospel. Sin, that we all have sinned and fallen short of of the standard of God. Righteousness, we don't have our own righteousness. Jesus is the one who is righteous. Judgment, the way we judge things is is wrong, and and God is the one who who has the the correct judgment, but but Jesus is the one who was judged in our place so that we might not fall into judgment. So the world is confused about these matters of sin and righteousness and judgment. And how is the world going to get straightened out on this? Well, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. He will expose, He will convince, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then He, he takes one of the, each one of these, concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Now, the world doesn't know that that's sin, not to believe in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit presses that home to the world, that it is sin not to believe in the only Son of God. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And once again, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by going to the Father. And He convicts, the Holy Spirit convicts the world about its mistaken righteousness and the, and the perfect righteousness of Christ that He offers to us. And then He says, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, what is, what is the world thinking in these days when they kill Jesus? What are they thinking? That this, that this heretic was judged that he was hung on a tree and that he was judged by God. But actually what was happening was just the opposite of that. It was actually actually the enemy. It was actually Satan who was being cast out and, and taken down at the cross. It wasn't Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit brings that home to the world so that, so that they can see these things concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Do you see what's going on here? He's saying the world's going to hate you. And I'm sending you out in the world as witnesses. But I am also sending with you the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do as a witness is tell the truth to the world and receive what the world will give you. But be encouraged because I'm sending the Spirit and the Spirit will take your witness and the Spirit will bear witness with your witness and the Spirit will convince the world, expose the world, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And He will draw many to believe in Jesus. Now, this section is heavy. It could be discouraging. 
it's about hatred of the world towards Christians, and we've talked about the cost of witness in the world to many of our brothers and sisters, but it actually should serve as a stimulus to us. Jesus is saying, I have sent the Holy Spirit, and He will do the work. You just need to go out and tell the truth and watch the Holy Spirit break down the barriers. Watch the Holy Spirit melt the hearts. Watch the Holy Spirit convince the minds. Watch the Holy Spirit work on the wills that people might come to faith in Jesus. You go out, you tell the truth, and the Spirit will do what only the Spirit can do. Now, in order to be convinced of this, as we go out into the world, all we need to do, if we are already Christians is to look at ourselves and to look at our our own story because we were of the world and something happened if we're Christians. Some some intervention took place in our lives. Somehow we, we heard about Jesus. Somebody bore witness to us. It might have been your parents. It might have been, as in my case, a friend. And then pastors bearing witness about Jesus. And then what did we find happened in ourselves? Inexplicably, we found something happening in ourselves. And what was that? We became convinced. Maybe at a very young age, you became convinced. Maybe as a teenager, almost an adult, like I was, you became convinced. Maybe later in life, you became convinced. But why was that? What was it that happened in you? Well, now you know what it was that happened in you. It wasn't the brilliant argumentation of the witness who who told you about Jesus. It wasn't the flashy presentation of the one who told you about Jesus. It was the truth that that person told, and the Spirit took that truth and convinced you of it so that you found yourself believing the truth. And so if He has done that in you, He can do that in others as well. No one is more surprised to find me as a Christian than I am. And when I meet people, and they find out I'm a Christian, and they find out I'm a pastor, they try to come up with some sociological or psychological reasons why that might be. They say, oh, you must have grown up in a very religious home. No. Well, you must be a a really spiritual person. No. I'm actually shamefully very carnal in myself. Well, then then what is it? Well, I can tell you what it is. I can tell you exactly what happened. When I was in my last year of high school, Northeast High, real near here, somebody told me about Jesus. And this person told me about sin. And I realized I was a sinner. This person told me about the righteousness of Christ that was fulfilled in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascending to the Father. And told me about judgment, that Jesus took judgment, or if I rejected Jesus' work, that I would have judgment. So this person told me about sin and righteousness and judgment. But that wasn't all that happened. I found that there was something going on in me that at the time I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea from where it came. This, this influence that came on me, that, that drew me to these things, and that convinced me that they are true. And if you're a Christian, that's happened to you. And so, if that's happened to you by that that sovereign work 
of the Holy Spirit in your life with the simple witness of somebody who told you about Jesus, then you, all you need to do is to go out and to tell others about Jesus and watch the Holy Spirit do His amazing work in them even as He's already done it in you. Let's pray. Oh God, send us forth. Send us forth that we might tell people about Jesus. That we might simply tell the truth as witnesses about what we have have seen and heard and known and experienced. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would attend to our often faltering witness and that You would take it and make it powerful in the lives of those who hear, even as You made it powerful in our lives to the conversion and the salvation of many. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.